Welcome to a Slice of Orange. I'm Jenny Balma. As the dates on the calendar are getting closer and closer to the end of our November 2022 general election, I, I want to do a deep dive on retention judges' races. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm actually going to tell you we shouldn't be voting for them at all. And if you've seen my uh, Slice of Orange endorsements, you know that I don't vote for the retention justices on principle and Here's where I'm going to make my case. Um, we lack the information to make an informed vote. And I fundamentally believe my vote is so valuable, I will not uh, cast a, a, a vote where I don't have enough information to be informed. So today we're going to take a look at direct democracy, a little history about how and when these races even got on the ballot, how the death penalty changed everything. We're going to do a little throwback. Uh, 1972, 1996, Governor Moonbeam. And we're going to look at whether or not 76% of California voters actually supported one of the most controversial conservative judicial nominees who could have been the first Black woman on the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to make the case that we should change these elections and take the question off the ballot. We should still retain power to remove justice under extraordinary circumstances, but we should stop asking voters to vote on races without any information. So hopefully at the end of this, you'll agree. Let's get started. The races where you vote yes or no to retain that justice for 12 years, I do not vote. And here's why. I have a really good reason. Um, it's a tool of direct democracy. It comes from the 20th century progressive movement in the 1930s. We passed a proposition um, and, and, and we needed it then. It made sense then. You know, we had the corruption of the Southern Pacific Railroad, the political party machines, a lot of what we have today in our election rules in the state of California comes out of that response to the political corruption of the time. However, it's time to change this. We need to fundamentally change the way we look at our appellate justices. So California Supreme Court, California District Courts. And, 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 and one of the reasons I think we need to do this is because in the history of having the power to retain or not retain justices, there's a single election where justices were not retained. So voters have used this power once, and it was incredibly expensive. So it's not as if the voters just woke up one election and decided they didn't want these people. It was a coordinated, well-paid-for campaign effort. So I believe we need to change this. I I'm hoping we can get lots of organizations together. I'm hoping good government groups can join together. I would love to persuade my dear League of Women Voters friends that it would be better if we allowed voters to recall justices, keep that power, and take the justices' elections off our ballot. We're cluttering our ballot with races that are usually decided overwhelmingly in favor of retention with zero information. So we could have administrative review of judicial performance if there was malfeasance or you know, mental incapacitation if there was anything in in, in the world that we want to write into the initiative because 
this current system was passed by an initiative in the 1930s. We have to have another initiative to change it. So we can do that. We can compose an initiative that would make sense. My short-term advice, um, voters should spend their time researching competitive elections on the ballot and skip this portion. Um, Even if only to save time and ink of bubbling in those uh, long list of retention justices, you have my permission to skip. Um, long-term, I think we need to work to change the system to improve our elections. No one benefits from entire section of the ballot that no one has the information to make a choice. And again, this is different from our county superior courts where candidates running against each other. We can meet them. We can kind of compare. Um, If no one challenges an incumbent in those county superior court races, which is often the case, they don't appear on the ballot. They win another six-year term. I'm a little torn that, that that we're asking people who want to be judged to raise money and have yard signs and endorsements and all of that. You know, Orange County had nine Superior Court judges on the June 2022 ballot, and eight were decided um, in that race, uh, in, in that election, mainly for their ballot designation that had OC district attorney. So I don't think the voters are doing a lot of research for those races either. Um, but that's that's not my concern today. Today, we're talking about retention judges. So vote for your county superior just uh, superior court judges. And for retention justices, you have my permission to skip it and leave it blank. If you want to vote all yes, you can. If you want to vote all no, you can. That's how elections and democracy works. But um, I want to dive deeper. Um, I really want to kind of give you some perspective, some history. We're going to break it into three parts. We're going to talk about the history of how we got this and why we have the system that we have. I want to talk about the one election uh, where justices were removed. I want to talk about the one election where justices were removed and the 1986 election, which you know is this anomaly and, and the exception to the rule. And then I also want to do a case study um, you know, of a justice who probably voters of California would have uh, removed if they had been paying attention. Um, and, and so we'll talk about the, the case study of Justice Janice Rogers Brown. Um, and hopefully then you'll all become experts on retention judges and, and we can move forward. And, and, and I hope to persuade some folks that we should get rid of um, this system and, and reform it uh, and make it a better government. So that's what we're going to do today. So currently, our California Supreme Court justices, district court justices are appointed to these seats by the governor of California. That's also true of our superior court justices, most, mo- superior court judges. Um, most of our superior court judges are appointed by the governor. Very few appear on the ballot. Um, in fact, one of the reasons that I've discussed previously on, on this podcast, one of the reasons that there were so many races in Orange County is because Governor Brown and and now Governor Newsom have put a hold on appointing a lot of people from Orange County um, just because there was the snitch scandal, there were, you know, illegal behavior on our district attorney's points. And so um, often that has been the process. But for these retention justices, um, for our six district courts and our California Supreme Court, governor appoints them. Um, and then the next election, they appear on the ballot. They have to be reconfirmed. Uh, and then every 12 years, uh, they're, they're on the ballot. So um, before that, what happened before uh, the, the, the proposition, um, 
from the time we started, 1849, in our original state constitution, um, until 1934, when the voters changed it, the California state constitution called for contested judicial elections. So all of our all up and down um, uh, from municipal court judge, which we used to have, uh, all the way up to the California Supreme Court, every 10 years, there were contested judicial elections. So judicial candidates campaigned just like everybody else, making speeches and raising money and stumping for votes and having political deals, um, foreshadowing of why we changed it. And, and, and in the early 20th century, California courts were dominated by you know, judges that were purchased wholesale by the Southern Pacific Railroad and other large corporations. Um, and, and obviously that's bad. You don't really want judges that are indebted to large corporations and interest groups that bought their elections. Um, the former head of the American Bar Association, Judge John Perry Wood, really led the reform effort, um, you know, gave speeches all up and down the state uh, and, 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 and really talked about, you said, and I quote, um, at election time, the judges and the candidates for the bench spread their names over the country by every method known to advertising. They were billboarded like a popular soap, the horror. Um, sidewalks and public halls were littered with cars extol cards extolling the merits of candidates, asking to be permitted to sit in judgment over their lives and property of people, and contributions were solicited from firms frequently in court. Um, and, and he was outraged that one candidate had collected $50,000 for a position that paid $10,000 a year. Obviously, Judge Wood would be shocked at the millions of dollars that are spent on elections uh, today for jobs that you know, are essentially part-time. You know, see Anaheim politics for that. Um, so he, he really led the Los Angeles Bar Association and, and the American Bar Association, California Bar Association really led this initiative process. Um, and so they wanted to replace the sorry spectacle that judicial elections had become. And so Proposition 3 was on the ballot, approved in uh, November 1934, which gives us the current system where the governor appoints justices to six district courts, the California Supreme Court, then they appear on the ballot to be reconfirmed. So, you know, the California Supreme Court uh, justice, uh, Chief Justice is on the ballot this time. She was just appointed earlier this year by Governor Newsom. And then 12 years from now, she'll appear on the ballot next time. Um, and, and the modern appointments are a fairly good system. You know, the governor has an open uh, link on the website. So if you uh, meet the requirements to serve as a judge on California court where you're, a, you know, a, an, an, a judge of a court of record for 10 years immediately preceding this election to be elevated to the to the uh, appellate court person has been a member of the state bar or served as a judge of record in this state. Um, and then there are, you know, and I'll put the uh, California Constitution Article uh, 6, I'll put it in the, the show notes, the links, there are 12 steps. Uh, and you fill out the application with basic information and personal information, educational history, work history, qualification and suitability, your experience, writing samples, honors and awards, uh, organizations, memberships, and community activities, additional questions. And then there's a, quite a thorough background check and references. So, um, you know, you too can apply to be a, a California Supreme Court justice or an appellate justice or run for, uh, if you've been a lawyer for 10 years, you can run for a, a county superior um, court judge. But th th this is the, the, the process that we go through. So, 
So what happened in 1986, this one election where the justices don't all win their election? Well, to really understand it, we got to rewind to the 1970s because the campaign, not necessarily the motive or the outcome, the campaign was all about the death penalty. So 1972, there's this huge debate over the death penalty. The California Supreme Court banned the practice only for voters in California to override them by passing Proposition 17, 68% of California voters supported a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the death penalty. And then the United States Supreme Court ruled in Furman versus Georgia that the death penalty violated the Eighth Amendment, was cruel and unusual punishment, but left the door open for states to fix that, which, of course, is what the states promised to do so that they could get the death penalty back, which, spoiler alert, the United States Supreme Court lets them get the death penalty back in 1976, but we're not there yet. So back to California in 1972, the death penalty isn't an option. It's been overruled by the United States Supreme Court, thereby overruling Proposition 17 that they had just affirmed and passed by a huge margin. So the practical reality is, what do you do with people who've already been sentenced? And there are a lot in California. So um, just as a matter of course, California's love to sentence people to death, and we struggle a little bit with actually executing them, but that's for another episode. So everybody who's been sentenced to execution had their set death sentence commuted. So they're called the class of 72 and in California, that included some really notorious murders who hadn't been on death row very long. Um, California didn't yet have LWAP, which is life in prison without possibility of parole now. If you sentence somebody, um, you have the option if you don't have the death penalty, if you don't uh, 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 decide, if the jury doesn't decide to sentence someone to death, California can, uh, California juries can sentence to life in prison without possibility of parole. So basically, the, the death sentence in prison without execution. So 1972, that's not a possibility. So 174 death row inmates had their sentences reduced to life in prison, which meant they were all eligible for release. Now, you know, Sirhan Sirhan comes up for, for, for parole over and over and over and doesn't until just recently. Um, get recommendation for parole. Governor Newsom, you know, did not release him, but there's this hope and, and it keeps coming up. Uh, you know, Charlie Manson, I don't, I don't know how much he got his hopes up for parole, but over and over and over, Charles Manson did. So speaking of those folks, um, you know, Sirhan Sirhan had murdered Bobby Kennedy in 1968, dashing his hopes for a presidential run. Um, had been sentenced to uh, death in California. Charles Manson and his followers had just been convicted in 1971. So obviously people were upset that, that, that these gruesome murderers who had finally been convicted could possibly be paroled. Um, so people had, had some pretty strong feelings. Um, you know, Manson ends up dying in prison. I, Doubt Sirhan Sirhan will ever be released, but who knows how long he'll live or if a future governor will um, actually release him. But the time after time, these cases come up for parole. And eventually, 
not right away, but eventually, uh, you know, 50 people who had been sentenced to death were released from prison. Um, and, and a few of them committed more crimes. And, and so, of course, the media covered those in great detail that, that, you know, the United States Supreme Court and California Supreme Court had overruled the wishes of the California voters. And, and, and so all of this is to set the stage for this political showdown between liberals and conservatives on the wall. And again, for all the, you know, jokes about the land of fruits and nuts and these crazy California liberals, uh, nicknames that California gets, the voters have shown over and over that they're pretty tough on crime. Um, proposition after proposition after proposition, overwhelmingly, uh, you know, tough on crime measures. And it's only been recently that a reckoning of um, kind of the reality of criminal justice uh, reforms that desperately have needed uh, to be considered for you know decades um, are finally getting voters to take a look at that. But in the 1970s, not true at all. Um, so in 1974, California elects the youngest governor of Jerry Brown, the, the prequel for those of you who only know him as governor from the 21st century, when he was the oldest person elected governor in our state, he was a very different leader in the 1970s. He's 36 years old, you know, had very different ideas from the old guard, um, from, you know, the establishment. Um, he <laughs> didn't live in the governor's mansion, which made lots of people upset, rented an apartment and had a mattress on the ground, on the floor. Um, he drove a sedan instead of being chauffeured around town and for some reason it was always described as a beat up uh, a beat up car I, I don't think it actually was but horrors to horrors he sometimes walked to work um, he practiced Zen Buddhism he dated Linda Ronstadt a rock star um, you know his campaign platform was protect the earth serve the people explore the universe really into space exploration so he's a candidate for in the 1970s of new and unconventional ideas and they called him Governor Moonbeam um, and he was strongly opposed to the death penalty, and he started appointing justices who aligned with his views, as governors do. So, now we're in 1976, and bicentennial fever had swept the nation. Seriously, the, the country turned red, white, and blue. It was everywhere. Um, parades and celebrations, 200th anniversary of uh, uh, the, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence that summer, um, and more on the death penalty. So here's where the United States reverses their 1972 uh, overruling of the death penalty with Furman. They take another case where the state said, we promise, we promise, we promise we're going to do this without cruel and unusual punishment. We're going to apply it appropriately. And so the Supreme Court in Gregg versus Georgia, 1976, reinstates the death penalty. Um, and, and the states promise that they'll do it right, which, spoiler alert, they didn't. And it wasn't. Um, so California gets the death penalty back. We still have the class of 72. So everybody who prior to Furman had been convicted, uh, sentenced to the death penalty are in this new, now you can be paroled. Obviously, California can't sentence anyone to death between 72 and 76. But in 1976, California says absolutely positively, we are going to sentence people to death. And they double down with a poorly written initiative called the Briggs Initiative, which increased penalties and added special circumstances so the death penalty could be used more often. Turns out, you know, it, it violated the United States Constitution, but 
I'm getting ahead of myself. The California Supreme Court is going to get themselves into a lot of, of anger from the voters when they accurately interpret the Constitution. So California's got a Supreme Court that's already showed it's ready to rule against it in 72, and now a governor who's strongly opposed to the death penalty who's appointing more justices. So Rose Bird, the first woman chief justice of the California Supreme Court, um, is appointed by Jerry Brown. Under the Bird Court, a number of death penalty cases came before the Supreme Court. Obviously, you know, now, now we've got to a- actually apply it to make sure that it's not cruel and unusual punishment, not violating the Eighth Amendment, not violating the 14th Amendment. And, and, and Rosebird never voted to uphold a death sentence, partially because of this poorly written initiative, the Briggs Initiative, that's violating constitutional rights. But that, that doesn't mean that she swung the prison gates open. It doesn't mean that, you know, that the, the, the convictions were overturned. It, it often meant that the case went back to the trial court or was appealed, granted an appeal based on these constitutional violations. And Cruz Reynoso, who was one of the other justices besides Rose Bird, who was rejected in 1986, um, first Latino appointed to the California Supreme Court, a proud Fullerton College alum, um, who recently was uh, granted the honor of having a building on campus named after him. And then personal note, the building that I work in with the honors office where the dining hall is, the 200 building now will be known as the Reynoso building after uh, the, the first uh, Latino named to the California Supreme Court. So he points out, as people are attacking him and wanting him to lose his job, um, that the court the, the California Supreme Court refused to hear appeals on most of the cases that they were upholding, but that doesn't make the press that, you know, the vast majority of cases are being upheld or they affirmed the convictions in almost all of these cases. And, and it was the few that they ruled on that made the press. And almost all of those dealt with Briggs initiative passed by the voters. That was, again, a violation of United States Supreme Court law. So um, the drumbeat of opposition gets louder and louder. And, and this is just building to uh, to 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 a, a point where we're going to have a showdown. So people are angry. Uh, a weird time in California politics where the voters just felt overruled time after time after time. And 1982, when the California Supreme Court overrules Briggs Initiative, um, our Law and Order Attorney General Republican George Duke Majin wins the the governor's race on on a really tough tough on crime, law and order platform, you know, nobody's going to call Duke Machen Moonbeam. So um, conservative politicians and law enforcement across the state supported him and and also saw this opportunity to oust Jerry Brown's justices, not wait for these relatively young justices to retire, but to get them out politically and to use this tool of direct democracy to replace them with law and order justices. And, you know, Orange County listeners may remember Tony Rakakis, who was our district attorney for a long time. He's part of this effort long before he was elected to Orange County district attorney. So lots and lots uh, of, of law and order folks start plotting this campaign and, and millions of dollars are raised. The state's flooded with ads and scare tactics in 19, in 1986. We only have these retention judges when the when the governor is on ballot, so um, it takes a little while to to plan this. 
as these years go by, more of the class of 72 were being released from prison. The campaign gained traction, gained traction among the vast majority of voters who wanted the death penalty and are outraged that the California Supreme Court refused to uphold it. So, spoiler, spoiler alert again, there are major, major problems with the death penalty and criminal justice then and now that we have discussed and, and, and talked about and uh, since 1986. But at this point, um, overwhelming support for the death penalty uh, and and very little discussion beyond the the Briggs initiative of, of the problems. Um, so they targeted Chief Justice Rose Byrd and, and they tried to recall her. They thought a special election might actually be easier. Uh, and, and I remember seeing, you know, recall Byrd bumper stickers on cars all over the Central Valley. Um, they finally decided that they could mount this campaign against the retention justices. So um, two associate justices, Cruz Inoso, who I talked about, and then Joseph Roden are also part of this target. But Rosebird really was the face uh, of the campaign. So all three of them had ruled again with the majority against the death penalty. There's only seven uh, justices on the California Supreme Court. So, you know, you only need four for a majority. There's already one there. So, so the, the, the plan was really to, if you remove those three and <clears throat> the governor gets to appoint the replacement. So Duke Majin had a, a vested interest in, in this campaign. Duke Majin's justices would then give the conservatives a majority. So the campaign was everywhere. $14 million. <laughs> Went a lot farther in, in 1986. Uh, you know, we, we've never seen spending like this against judges. TV ads featured parents of brutally murdered children and newspapers were full of criminal trials and further stoking the fear editorials, uh, were, were run. And of course, the governor himself was running for reelection. So the voters were seeing his campaign and the, the, the campaign against the justices together. Former Attorney General of California running on this tough on crime platform, telling them that the California Supreme Court justices weren't following the law and they needed to be voted out of office. And uh, Mike Farrell of MASH um, is a longtime death penalty opponent. Uh, he's often said that the death penalty was not the primary motive for conservatives. Um, they bankrolled the campaign against them. It, it was just the powerful weapon they could use to influence the electorate. And when, when you look at who is funding that $14 million? You see big oil, you see corporations, um, massive insurance companies, Western Growers Association, um, a lot of business interests. And, and I don't know if their primary motive was to change the death penalty. Um, I don't know if that's why they contributed millions of dollars. But I think they also thought um, that Jerry Brown and the, the California Supreme Court and the justices that Brown had appointed were anti-business um, and, you know, kept voting in favor of, uh, ruling in favor of of the the people of, you know, against business. So after all this money, under a targeted, really emotionally charged for your campaign against the justices, Years of frustration over the death penalty. The voters used their power for the first and now we know only time to essentially fire Supreme Court justices, voted to not retain these justices in this yes, no question. And by huge margins against Byrd, you know, Reynoso and Groden got a few more yes votes, but 68% of the voters 
uh, voted against Roseburg. Um, what didn't get as much attention was the fact that the very person leading the campaign against these justices, the governor, then got to appoint their replacements and stack the court with his own majority. So Governor Duke Majin, huge win for him, helps him beat Tom Bradley in a very, very close race. Um, he ends up with this reappointment, uh, choosing a, you know, a, a friend and, and calling Malcolm Lucas, Lucas as the chief justice of this new conservative court, along with the, the, the others to replace Reynoso and Broden. This new conservative court is pro-business, affirms the death penalty sen- sentences, although, you know, albeit that's easier now that the Briggs Initiative is gone, um, or at least the unconstitutional measures of the Briggs Initiative, and, and really favors the government over the people. And, and, and that, that campaign kind of was used as a handbook for other states. We've seen other states use that California campaign strategy to control judicial elections. And what we didn't know then was it was the only time retention ju- justices were going to be rejected by the voters. And in the absence of a political agenda, you know, kind of left on their own with no ads or information, voters in California have affirmed these justices every single time since. Um, so 1986 was the perfect storm of voter anger, dark money funding a fear-based campaign, a governor anxious to stack the court with his own replacement justices. So if that's the only time it's happened, we now have election after election after election after election where voters are choosing to retain justices with really no information. Um, and so that's another reason why I really believe we need to reform this. I really believe we need to take this off the ballot and retain the power for recall. If, you know, if a justice is, is guilty of malfeasance or incompetence or uh, whatever the voters decide, that tool still exists that, uh, you know, organization or good government group, an interest group, whoever is watching uh, the justices could in fact mount a signature gathering campaign and, and place it on the ballot. And it would stand out far more than, than one justice that may be hidden among the many that are just getting absolute confirmation vote after confirmation vote. And, and to kind of take a look at the exception <clears throat> of maybe where voters might have wanted to vote against a retention justice, might not have actually wanted to support a justice. We'll, we'll take a look at a case study of one of them. Um, Janice Rogers Brown, uh, the justice that maybe California voters would have rejected. Um, I didn't pay much attention to Janice Rogers Brown when she was first appointed by Republican Governor Pete Wilson. He's the governor that succeeded uh, Duke Majin. <clears throat> Nicknamed himself the education governor before fundamentally defunding our state universities, but that's for another episode. Um, so in 1994, she's appointed to the district court by Pete Wilson. And in, then in 1996, she's named associate justice on the California Supreme Court. Like everybody else, she appears on the ballot for reconfirmation. And then every 12 years, she's going to have to be on the ballot again. And, and then like now, uh, little information or coverage of the retention judges. Most voters are confused. So they probably didn't pay attention to the fact that when she was nominated, the California State Bar rated her not qualified. Uh, 
They cited her lack of experience, but also her tendency to inject her political views into her political or into her judicial. And she was the first not qualified appointment to the California Supreme Court. But most voters didn't know that, or maybe they didn't care. There's more that she ruled against affirmative action. She ruled against abortion rights. She argued that Black women should not be considered as a protected group and, and so allowed prosecutors to use preemptory challenges to exclude jurors solely on the basis that they are Black women as a Black woman herself. So a conservative Black woman who's ruling against a lot of these things. Uh, she's compared liberal democracy to slavery by the government. She's railed against the a quote, insatiable maw of socialism and the United States has a debased and debauched culture with, with moral depravity that finds moral depravity entertaining and virtual contemptible. So um, she's got away with words, which is why she's going to go on the lecture circuit later on. So <clears throat> she gets confirmed uh, on the ballot, California voters not paying any attention. Uh, and she comes to my attention when President George W. Bush nominated her to the federal court with a spot on the District uh, of Columbia Circuit Court in 2003. So there's outrage and, and, and outrage that held up her nomination for two years. She's not the only controversial justice uh, nominated by George W. Bush, but she's absolutely makes the short list there. Democrats blocked her confirmation. They saw her as a conservative judicial activist who ignores the law in favor of her own political views. This, you know, comes up over and over uh, and and called her one of President Bush's most ideological extreme judicial nominees. The Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and Civil and Human Rights opposed her nomination based on her record on the California Supreme Court, <clears throat> where most voters didn't pay any attention, um, where she exhibited a, quote, strong and persistent disturbing hostility towards affirmative action, civil rights, the rights of individuals with disabilities, the rights of workers, and the fairness of the criminal justice system, unquote. So I remember watching the coverage of her very contentious Senate confirmation hearing, and the media kept citing California's voters as supporting her. And, and, and they kept saying her, her election numbers should be proof that she should be confirmed by the United States Senate. How bad can she be if California, in all caps, um, you know, emphasis clear that we're crazy liberals. So if California voters reelected her with 76% of the votes, so at least some people were paying attention and voted now, but the overwhelming majority threw away their vote and voted yes out of habit. Um, the media was citing that as reasons that she should be confirmed. That was really the first time I realized the impact of voting yes without any information. Um, because votes should matter. You should be able to look at the outcome of an election and make an assumption on what the voters wanted because of how the voters voted. So, one month after she was actually confirmed for the federal bench, 2005, she was strongly considered for the short list of potential nominees for the United States Supreme Court. 
a short list, you know, Bush had 13 potential nominees replacing Sandra Day O'Connor on the United States Supreme Court. And again, the media cited the California voters being strongly in support of her and, you know, would cite other Democrats, uh, you know, running for governor or senator and saying, you know, that these, these liberal Democrats are getting lower majorities than Janice Rogers Brown. How, how bad can she be? She should absolutely be confirmed. So now she wasn't named to the Supreme Court. She wasn't nominated to the Supreme Court. If, you know, in 2005, we're taking, taking it back, but you may have forgotten that Bush actually chose to nominate John Roberts to replace Sandra Day O'Connor. So poor Sandra Day O'Connor. She tried to retire for a couple of years without success. Um, her husband's health had declined rapidly with Alzheimer's. And every time she said she was going to retire, Chief Justice Rehnquist, her old law school buddy, said, No, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna retire. I'm ready to retire. Let um let the president replace me. We can't have two replacements at one time. Can you stay another year? She'd agree. And she'd hire law clerks for the next year. And then Rehnquist would change his mind and, and say he had to stay long. So finally, she got fed up with that and uh, sent a letter to President George W. Bush announcing her retirement without talking to Rehnquist first. And George W. Bush has the short list. Janice Rogers Brown is on it. Media proclaims, you know, first black woman going to be on the United States Supreme Court, replacing the first woman, Sandra Day O'Connor, who had been nominated by Ronald Reagan. All of these, you know, these first that are going to, that are going to convene in this, but Bush decides not to. Um, possibly because of her contentious confirmation prior, but John Roberts is announced. Uh, and then before the confirmation hearing takes place, William Rehnquist dies. Um, so there's no confirmation hearing for John Roberts. It's on hold. So Sandra Day O'Connor, who had promised to stay until her replacement was confirmed, has to stay longer. So, um, and, and, and side note, it's got to be the weirdest conversation. <laughs> John Roberts has been announced as the replacement for Sandra Day O'Connor. And then after Rehnquist dies, you know, Bush calls him up and, hey, you know, uh, you know how I announced you were my nominee to replace Sandra Day O'Connor? I, I kind of need a chief justice. And by the way, that's a better job. Uh, so I was thinking I could nominate you for that instead. And you could be chief justice of the United States. And of course, John Roberts is thrilled and, you know, excited to be elevated without even going to the confirmation hearing first. Um, so John Roberts is confirmed chief justice. Uh, eventually Sandra Day O'Connor gets to go back to Arizona with her, with her husband who eventually died. Um, Sam Alito, not Jan- Janice Rogers Brown is ultimately chosen to replace Sandra Day O'Connor and still serves on the court. So, um, the next time I heard her name, uh, and those California voters, uh, being used as justification why she should be confirmed. Um, she had retired from the bench in 2017, but President Trump was tossing her name out as a possible uh, replacement for Jeff Sessions for United States Attorney General. And again, the media said she can't be that bad or California voters wouldn't have reelected her with 76% of the vote. You know, I'm, I'm in yelling at the TV that that doesn't mean what you think it means. And I doubt most voters even know they voted for her. I, you know, couldn't identify her if you put her name and face in front of you. Um, just people are dutifully filling in the bubbles next to every single justice on the ballot year after year after year. Um, so 
update on Janice Rogers Brown. Um, she currently serves on the Board of Regents of Pepperdine University and the University of Pacific. She's on the Board of Advisors of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a conservative libertarian law firm that's opposed to the administrative state in all ways. She's a member of the Federalist Society and a number of other conservative groups that, you know, really worked hard during the Trump administration to get uh, conservatives, uh, ideological extremists on the bench uh, for these lifetime appointments on the federal courts and uh, advocated for many, uh, many of the judges and justices that Trump uh, eventually got confirmed. Um, in 2022, uh, as I'm recording this, she's listed as a lecturer for the University of California Berkeley School of Law, formerly Bolt, um, along with you know some other notable folks, uh, John Yu, uh, known best uh, for his Bush administration torture memos, and conservative lawyer Stephen Hayward, who denies climate change. So there you go. Berkeley School of Law has uh, uh, ideological options and and across the spectrum, uh, including Janice Rogers. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in California with an election system in place that's no longer needed. The reasons that voters approved it in 1934 are no longer true. Uh, Southern Pacific Railroad is no longer a, 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 an issue. Political party party machines are are not backing. Corporations are not funding uh, candidates for judge. The governors have an extensive background check, an appointment process. Yes, it's political. It's always going to be political when politicians are appointing people, but it's not corrupt. Um, the one election, 1986, where justices were not reelected was an anomaly. We haven't even seen a hint of these well-funded campaigns to remove justices. So in 90 years of having this election tool, the power was used exactly once with a concentrated targeted campaign behind. More importantly, I believe your vote should mean something. When we put a question on the ballot, Voters should have and make an informed decision. That's not happening. Voters are voting all yes or all no without even reading the names. Um, and, and, and the case of Janice Rogers Brown, that vote was then used to justify approval. It was, you know, misinterpreted. It should, that's how votes are supposed to work, <laughs> matter. The vote should matter. An affirmation vote should affirm what you know to be true. So this is not working. So for all of these reasons, I really believe that it's fundamentally time to change the election system that allows retention judges, justices to be on our ballot. And until then, by meager protest vote, but everyone listening to this, join me. Um, in the short term, leave those blank. And in the long term, work with me to change the system. So who's with me? Thanks for listening. So as always, thanks for listening. I couldn't do this podcast without you. A special shout out to my favorite listener, my mom, Peggy Jenkin, who listens to this podcast, even though she lives in Charlotte, California and doesn't get to vote for 90, 95% of the people I talk to. Um, my executive producer, Ann Watka, who spent years talking me into this. Uh, a huge thanks to the producing team who makes this possible, Jackson Henry and Fiza Valiola. 
Um, if you haven't listened to Observing Fullerton, you know what to do next. Subscribe and listen to all their past episodes. As part of the Fullerton Observer, uh, the podcast team, Arujan Veed, Arian Meza, Bianca Bravo, and our own Jackson Henry, keep you informed about the, uh, the Fullerton community with their podcast. So give them a listen. They've got a great show. Thanks. Talk to you soon.